can now be dismissed downstairs for their lesson time. Matt? Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and that if you do, you will perhaps have already even turned to Matthew 16. Matthew 16 and the passage that Jerome just read for us can be found on page 822 of the Bibles that are found in the backs of the chairs. If one of those would, would serve you, please, by all means, use it and even keep it if you would like or give it away to somebody else. Well, we have come to a point of Matthew's gospel where we have reached its thematic center. Everything so far in Matthew's gospel has been building up to this point. And you would be right to assess that the narrative climax of the gospel is really at the very end of Matthew where he records Jesus's commission to his disciples to then take everything that they had learned from him and go and make disciples. This, of course, being after Jesus was betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified, buried, and raised. But this passage in Matthew 16 is the thematic center of Matthew's gospel. Skip to verse 16 again of this passage, where Peter, Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the whole point that Matthew wants his Jewish readers to understand. That this Jesus, miraculously born of a virgin conception from the line of David, this carpenter from Nazareth who was a, now a traveling rabbi who taught God's law, who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, was the promised Messiah. The Christ, Simon says, the Son of the living God. Everything that precedes this text pointed to, or I suppose I could say led to this point, and now everything that proceeds after this text will be a journey down the hill, so to speak, from this text thematically, leading to the narrative climax of the book, which is the great commission after his death and resurrection. Lately, I have been reading C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy, or Space Trilogy, as it's also known. Of course, C.S. Lewis is much more well-known for the Chronicles of Narnia, but he also wrote this much less child-aimed uh, space trilogy. can be kind of hard to get through for some people. I'm getting towards the middle of the second book, and in full confession, I know some of you might judge me for this, but I've actually been listening to it, and I am a hearty proponent of audiobooks, so don't judge me for not holding it in my hand in this case. But anyway, I'm, I'm towards the middle of the second book, and being about 50% of the way through, I have come to understand the main character named Ransom and the world that he's in, which is evidently the planet Venus, and the characters around him a little bit better. And that's usually how it works 
with any story that you're reading, whether it's fiction, like Lewis's Space Trilogy, or nonfiction, like the Holy Scriptures. By the time you're in the middle of the story, the author has brought you to a point where you don't know, obviously, how exactly things are going to end, but you've got a decent idea of what exactly the situation is, who the characters are, what maybe some of their problems are that they're facing, and where exactly things stand. And that's the case with Matthew's writing. He has brought us to the point, and his first century readers, long before us, where they and we with them are pretty well aware of what Matthew is claiming. Matthew has been saying that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God's anointed one, his chosen one to fulfill all of the promises and all of the need for a prophet, priest, and king, a Messiah. And so Matthew's readers would have read by now, getting to chapter 16, verse 16, of the miraculous messianic works that Jesus had done. They would have read and heard of his kingly lineage that led up to his birth and of the many prophecies then that his birth and life and ministry and death and so on would have fulfilled. They would have understood at least a little bit better uh, about Jesus's razor sharp grasp of the word of God and his ability to teach it and apply it in a way that that razor sharp edge would cut to the very heart of his listeners. And so they've, and we with them have gotten to know Jesus a bit, getting up to this part. And right before this text in Matthew 16, leading into this climactic statement of verse 16, Matthew had recorded what we looked at together last week. Jesus's warning to his disciples to beware the false teaching, or to use Jesus's image, the leaven of the Pharisees. In other words, Jesus was saying, watch out for even this seemingly small dose of legalistic, the legalistic self-righteousness of the Pharisees or the progressive self-focus that would lead people astray from him and his gospel like the doctrine of the, Phar- the Sadducees had done. Those Pharisees and Sadducees in the passage before our text today, didn't want to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected him. They rejected his teaching and his message. They wanted to embrace their own good news, so to speak, even though it wasn't good news, that their methods could win them God's favor. But here in this text, we find Matthew then recording an example or we could say the example of embracing Jesus instead of rejecting him. Of a right understanding of who he is contrasted with the wrong way that the Pharisees and Sadducees received him, if you could even call it that. So what I'd like to do is break down our text today into three parts and then look at three principles that this text teaches that we must receive. And the first part is this test of Jesus in verses 13 through 15. Jerome read it for us a moment ago, but I'm going to read it again. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? We're not told how long it was exactly after the events of the previous passage that this discussion takes place. Mark's gospel records a brief interlude in his chapter 8 between this occasion with the Pharisees and Sadducees and this discussion with the disciples where Jesus goes to Bethsaida and heals a blind man. Matthew doesn't record that. Matthew takes us straight to this occurrence that he tells us takes place at Caesarea Philippi, right after this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees, where the point is this is the wrong way to, quote-unquote, receive Jesus, he takes us to this place where we see a right response. But Jesus asks this question, and he asks it in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, that is actually very important, but put a mental finger there, because I'm not going to say anything about it just yet. I'm going to get, get back to it in a moment. I'd like to jump right into what Jesus is doing here, and it is just a very interesting thing that he asks them, who do you say that I am? And you might be right to question why Jesus would ask this. One of my besetting sins is caring too much about what people think of me. I've struggled with that my whole life. As a college student, I was so concerned about what people thought of me that I actually asked uh, my roommate at a Christian college, an older, godly young man, what do you think of me? And he just kind of snapped on me and gave me this very loving, firm rebuke about the fear of man. He had exhorted me already to beware thinking too much of what people think of me, but I had fallen into again. That was the fear of man. This is not. Jesus asking, Who, what do people say about me and what do you think about me, was nothing like that. Might it have been that Jesus simply wanted a report regarding the word on the street about him? I don't think that's it either, because he had already read people's thoughts before. He was immensely wise and able to discern what people thought and even deduce things from a human standpoint what was going on around him. And of course, he is and was God incarnate. So there's no limit to his knowledge. It can't have been just as simple as wanting to know what the word on the street was. It seems to me that what we have here is Jesus administering some sort of test, wanting to confront his disciples, to kind of force them into having to speak up regarding their own opinion and confession on who he is. And so he asks them what everyone else thinks in order to get them to the place of asking them what they think. And when he asks them what everyone else thinks, their reply is pretty much what you would think. They say that people think he's John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or some of the other prophets. In other words, when Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is, they're telling him that some of the people aren't really putting the dots together. Some, thinks he's, some think he's John the Baptist reincarnate. Others, perhaps a, a prophet of old like Jeremiah or Elijah or others. But then, having heard that response, Jesus takes it where he ultimately wants to go with his disciples. 
And that's verse 15. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And of course, that's a question that is immeasurably important for all of us in this room right now. Who do you say that Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph of Nazareth, the carpenter from the backwater town seemingly in Galilee, is? Who do you say he is? That's the question Jesus asks his disciples. And then Matthew records this thematic center of his book where Simon confesses. He replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the second part of this story. The answer from Simon in verse 16. Now Simon has a bit of a reputation in the Bible for speaking too fast and sometimes incorrectly. But right here, He gets it 100% right. He says that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what the word the Christ means. If you have an ESV in front of you like I do, it says you are the Christ. And what he means is you are the Messiah. Perhaps you know this already, but if you don't, anytime you see the words Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. It means Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed chosen one of God, the prophet, priest, and king of God, the servant of the Lord who has come to save. And having recently come off this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees who demonstrated a lack of faith in Jesus, Matthew wants to highlight for his readers the proper response to Jesus, which is to believe that he is the Son of God, to believe that he is the Messiah, the Christ of God, the Savior and King of all who would believe on him. And friends, I just have to take a moment to say that answer to Jesus' question is at the heart of all of our beliefs, all of our convictions, all of our philosophy of ministry here at Redeemer Bible Church. Why do we preach expositional sermons like I'm doing right now, or at least seeking to do, to just let the text say what it says and try to explain it phrase by phrase and and, and section by section? Because we're convinced that as we ingest and digest the message of Scripture, we will see and savor, savor Jesus as our Savior and King. Why do we sing corporate worship songs that are theologically rich and substantive instead of light and fluffy? Because we're convinced that the lyrics of our songs greatly affect whether or not we believe that Jesus is Lord and King and Savior or more of a boyfriend or a jovial magic wizard grandpa. Why are we always seeking at Redeemer to cultivate a culture of transparent and authentic and truly honest discipleship? Because we're convinced that we all continue to need Jesus every day. And that he has called us to live as his followers in community with one another as fellow disciples. And not a fake community where we all pretend and put on a nice face and sort of hold back all the details of what are really going on in our lives. But no, real community with Jesus at the center. 
And so I can go on and on, but I think you get the point. This confession of Simon is at the center of the message of Matthew's gospel. And that answer, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, should be at the center of all of our hearts, both as individuals and as families, and then, of course, as a whole church. But I wonder if you're listening to this and would say that you're not really sure what you think about the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Maybe, frankly, you would identify with the Pharisees and Sadducees of the last passage who are a bit hostile to Jesus because of the audacity of his claims and the authoritative nature in which he speaks and teaches. If that's you today, all I can do is point you to the evidence of the scriptures and say, please believe in the same way that Simon Peter did. He got it right. And the evidence points to it. Some scholars suggest that what Peter was doing here was actually acting as a spokesperson for the whole group of disciples and that they all agreed together and then he was kind of the de facto leader of the group to speak up. But even if he wasn't specifically speaking for all of them in that moment and just sort of on his own blurting this truth out, clearly in the end, every single one of these guys, except Judas, believed on Christ in this way. These men came to the conclusion that Jesus' claims and teaching were true such that they were willing to die. And friends, did die for the faith years later. I will not go through a list of what all of these men went through as servants of Jesus in the days and months and years that would follow and how some of them were brutally killed for their faith in Jesus. But they were so convinced that it was true, having spent time with him, having seen him crucified and raised from the dead, that they were willing to be crucified, some of them themselves, beheaded some of them, and so on and so forth, because, being, because of their being convinced of what Simon Peter said. This is the Christ. This is the anointed one of God. This is the Son of God. My prayer for you today is that if you have not come to this conclusion yet, that you would today. And just like we do every week, we'll have a, a prayer team with lanyards on in the back that will say prayer team on it so that you can know that they are people who are safe and qualified and eager and ready to talk to you if you have any questions at all about who Jesus is and how you should respond to him. So Jesus tests his disciples, and then either speaking for the group or on his own, Peter answers correctly. It's the answer. But what is the point of all this? Well, to some extent, everything that we've already talked about. The point simply being that this is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and all should respond in the same way that Simon did. But we've got more here, and it is where we see Jesus' response, which is really the point of this whole passage in the verses that follow, starting in verse 17. Here is where the meat of the passage lies. Jesus answers Simon and says, Blessed are you, Simon 
Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Having just seen the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their incorrect attitude toward Jesus, and having seen other interactions that were similar throughout the chapters of Matthew's gospel coming up to this point, with similar outcome as the other interactions with the Pharisees and and others like them, now Matthew points us to what results from a right response. How many times we've seen Jesus respond to a wrong response with some sort of warning or even condemnation. But here, when Peter responds rightly, what Jesus says in these verses is absolutely incredible. Friends, if you're new to the Christian faith, this is literally one of the pillars of the Christian faith. You can't get much bigger of a passage than this one. This is a passage that has had me totally intimidated and excited and scared and overjoyed to share it with you as I've studied it this past week. Jesus tells Simon that he is a blessed, transformed vice regent in the kingdom of heaven. This confession from Simon is an indication, Jesus says, of these three things. That's a lot. Simon's confession, his right response to the eternally important question of who Jesus is, evidenced that he was a recipient of blessing, that he was a man who had been transformed, and that he was someone who was now a vice regent in the kingdom of God. In other words, when I say vice regent, I mean not just a passive recipient or citizen, but one with a role one with investment, one with ownership, and yes, responsibility in the kingdom of God. Let's work through these. First, Jesus says that Simon's confession showed that he had been blessed with that understanding by God. And I tried to be very careful not to say that Peter's confession led to this blessing. Because according to Jesus in verse 17, Peter's confession was an indicator of a blessing that Simon had already received. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus doesn't say that Simon received that belief through flesh and blood. He says that it's not through flesh and blood that Simon believes this. In other words, he's saying that it wasn't Simon's human nature that led him to believe and understand the truth about him. And you see, Jesus actually uses a little bit of wordplay here. In verse 16, Simon says, you are the son of the living God. And in verse 17, Jesus calls him the son of Jonah. That's what bar Jonah means, from Jonah. And so he says that Simon, son of Jonah, did not believe in the messianic identity of Jesus through flesh and blood. In other words, through his father. In other words, through what naturally comes to him. But by the miraculous gift of the heavenly father. God the father. That's what he's saying 
in verse 17. My father, look at the end of verse 17, my father who is in heaven, back up, has revealed this to you. Not flesh and blood, not your, your father Jonah and all the information that he passed on to you or even the human nature that he passed on to you. No, Simon was only able to understand and believe in Jesus's messianic identity because of a spiritual work that the heavenly father, God the father, had done in him. Not because of whatever Simon's father Jonah had taught him. Simon likely learned things about God from his father Jonah, but whatever it was, it didn't go far enough to lead him to an understanding of Jesus as the chosen one. That was something that's only possible through divine intervention. And you know, there's hope there for parents in this room. It is not solely up to you to get your children to believe and understand that Jesus is the Christ. That is something that God must ultimately do in them. And of course, that does not mean that there is no role of teaching in our lives. And that's not what this sermon is about, so I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. But there's hope for you parents who struggle with wanting to twist, perhaps, your children's arm into belief. That is not your job. It is information that is revealed through God's grace. Jesus also speaks of a transformation that was taking place in Simon as well. Jesus continues this kind of wordplay-esque reply to Simon's declaration in verse 18. In 17, Simon says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then at the beginning of 18, Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, you are Peter. So Jesus gives Simon a title similarly to how Simon had just acknowledged Jesus's title. And this title, Peter, is the Greek word Petros. And in Aramaic, which is the language that they would have been speaking then, it's the word Kepha. And it means rock. Petra, Petros, excuse me, rock, and Kepha in Aramaic, rock. This whole thing of like, exchanging or, or bestowing a title on Simon Peter is something akin to what the British might be more used to regarding getting knighted. It's something similar to that, where they are given a title and a new name in many cases. And by the way, speaking of C.S. Lewis, this is exactly what C.S. Lewis was doing in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he named the first son in that story Peter, and he was then the first one to be knighted by Aslan. Anyway, Peter was actually a name that scholars say were, was virtually unknown in the pre-Christian ancient world. But boy, that name has stuck, hasn't it? The name stuck with Simon Peter, and of course it's a name that's common even in our society today and in other cultures too. This name, Peter, this title, you could say, Rock, Peter, is the title that Simon came to be well known for, such that his two New Testament letters aren't called First and Second Simon. They're called First and Second Peter. And so Jesus gives him this title, but another thing that Jesus is doing in the beginning of verse 18, when he gives Simon this new name, is referring to and giving a name to 
the identity that Simon Peter was taking on as a professor and confessor of Christ. So Jesus is giving him a new name, but he's also sort of just acknowledging something that was already happening in Peter to lead Peter to the point where he would confess that Jesus is the Messiah. And now, in this passage, there's obviously something unique going on with Simon that not every Christian experiences in the exact same way. But this is also telling us about the fact that believers in Christ as the Messiah, as God's chosen one, as God's anointed king, are changed forever. They're transformed in their inner nature. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote about years later in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What I'm saying, friends, is that when you are miraculously given faith, when your life is invaded with grace, so to speak, through divine intervention, and you come to believe and understand that Jesus is the Christ, you are made into something totally new. Someone totally different. And my Christian friends here today, listen carefully. I had a pastor friend tell me that he likes to say to his congregation in moments like this, look at me with your eyes or look at me with your face. Listen carefully. You need to know this. You need to know that you, if you are in Christ, have been made new. You are not the same person that you were pre-Jesus. When you believed on Jesus as Savior and Lord, you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of heaven. You were spiritually renovated. The process of renovation began when you were washed in the blood of the Lamb. You were cleansed from sin and you were given robes of righteousness. That's who you are. And so Simon is given a new name which depicts the spiritual transformation that takes place in a person when they profess, when they testify, and when they believe on Jesus as the Messiah. But Jesus is also indicating in these verses not just the blessing that Peter is benefiting from, not just the transformation that's going on in him, but he also indicates that Peter is in a position now of vice regency. And I want to talk a little bit more about that. Where Jesus is going with this is something absolutely astonishingly profound and also something in these verses that has been profoundly controversial throughout church history. These sayings or this saying in verse 17 and into verse 18 about transformation and blessing are big, but the biggest point of Jesus' words come in the second part of 18 and into verse 19. He says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What a statement. And we do not have enough time left in our typical allotted sermon time to give this, give this all the proper treatment that it deserves 
whole chapters of commentaries have been written on this, and some with different viewpoints than others, and I'm not going to turn this into a seminary class on all of the potential things that can be said about this, but just at face value, what a statement. This newly knighted, if you will, Peter. Here's the gist of kind of the the debate about what Jesus is saying here. The debate is about who or what is the this rock in this verse. Some would say that Jesus is referring to Peter as the rock on which he will build his church. Others say that it is the confession that Peter expressed that is the rock on which he would build his church. And others, frankly a a smaller minority, say that Jesus was actually referring to himself when he said this rock is what I will build my church on. You see, it's very clear that Jesus is naming Simon Rock to illustrate the fact that he would build his church on a rock, but there are good exegetical and theological arguments to be made for what slash whom exactly Jesus had in mind when he said the words in Greek, tau te te petra, this rock. What exactly did Jesus mean? Now, some evangelicals like us are hesitant to interpret the rock as being Peter, largely because Roman Catholic doctrine has interpreted it that way to the end of building the papacy around it, calling Peter the first pope. Others say, in response to that, that there's no need to build an argument around a refutation of a bad interpretation of what seems to be just a plain reading, that it's Peter. Others would argue that the church is built on that confession, the statement Peter made, and that that's the foundation, and then the building would go on from there. And then, as I already said, this minority that say that it's Jesus argue that nowhere else in the New Testament is anyone but Jesus mentioned as a rock. And so that in the context of all of the New Testament, there's no reason to believe otherwise here. So we've got a significant debate on our hands about a really significant verse. A verse about confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and King, and a verse about the future of the people of God in the church, and a verse about how that church will never end no matter what. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, maybe you've picked up on this over the years that I've preached here, that when it comes to controversies that faithful Christians can charitably disagree on and remain in fellowship, I try not to preach my opinion on that controversy so that you'll pursue your own convictions because you can believe that the confession or that the rock is Peter or the confession or Jesus and be a a, a follower of Jesus. It's an interpretational point that's important to try to wrap our minds around, though. But my whole point of this vice regency thing actually depends on my position on this, and I think it's a big part of what this text is actually getting across to us. And so I feel like I have to sort of give away what I think about this and uh, encourage you to go make up your own mind. What I'm saying with this point about vice regency is that I think Jesus is saying that Peter 
and everyone else who professes faith in Christ like Peter did, confessing belief as him being the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king of God, are foundational to the building of the church of Jesus and the kingdom of his Father. And so my take on this is that it's, it's a little bit of a hybrid between the two main options. That it is Peter and other confessors like him. And part of why I think of it this way is actually because of what Peter himself said in his first letter. Would you turn over to 1 Peter? 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. I, I actually preached through Peter a, a few years ago, and this section stuck with me. Verses 4 through 10 of 1 Peter 2. Same guy that Jesus is talking to in Matthew 16 says this. As you come to him, he's speaking of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, a living stone, there's some rock imagery there, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the, stone, the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is saying in verse 5 and following of his letter here, that the people of God, along with their cornerstone Jesus, are living stones and part of the foundation of the spiritual dwelling place of God as priests in his kingdom, as the holy nation comprised of all who come to him in faith and repentance, regardless of whether or not they are Jew or Gentile. And for what purpose? Peter says, verse 9, for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what Peter is talking about here is the church, the spiritual house of God gathered for worship and fellowship and discipleship, giving glory to God. And so when I say that part of the point that Jesus was making in Matthew 16 was one of vice regency. What I mean is that Jesus was saying something about all those who profess faith in him like Peter did, being recipients not only of the same spiritual blessing of being given that kind of faith and not only of the kind of transformation that Peter went through being made a new person, but also being made a foundational part of the kingdom of God's advance through the church. 
a representative and an investor in his kingdom. Vice regents in the kingdom of the king, the king who is indeed the cornerstone of the whole spiritual structure, the rock of ages, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I tend to think that when Jesus said what he said to Simon Peter in, in Matthew 16, 17 through 19, that's what he was getting at. That anyone who confesses that he is Christ, the chosen one of God, has been blessed with that knowledge, has been made new, and has been given vice regency in the kingdom of God. That's what he's getting at when he tells him that he will build his church on this foundation. And in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind, whatever you loose, that's going to happen. And of course, Jesus isn't saying, like some friends of ours and other denominations perhaps might say, that we are given godlike power to forgive sins, like we are given divine power to restrict and allow people into heaven, but that there is an investment, that there is a representation that is happening here where we are part of that process of sharing the gospel and even proclaiming to certain people, your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus. Okay, what I'd like to do now is back up and try to take this in a little more broadly so that we can see how it fits into our lives. Three big takeaways for us from this passage. The first is that true belief on Jesus is a spiritual miracle. We've got to understand that from this text. If you've believed on Jesus, it is not because you have mustered up the faith to finally accept his offer as if he had his hands open to you, looking at you with puppy dog eyes, waiting to see if you will take it. No. If you've believed on Jesus, it is because God has done a miracle in you. He has opened your eyes to believe and understand the message of the gospel by pure grace. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter in verse 17. The second one is that accurate confessors of Jesus constitute the church. And I realize that's a little bit of a, a mouthful, and I'm sort of restating what I've already argued, but I think it's very important. The accurate confessions of the people of God regarding the Son of God are foundational to the construction of the church of God and the advance of the kingdom of God. Accurate confessions of the people of God regarding the Son of God are foundational to the construction of the church of God and the advance of the kingdom of God. And this is so important because what you believe about Jesus, which we've talked about a little bit already, literally determines whether or not you are part of his church. And when we're talking about the church, and what Jesus is talking about here regarding the church, is the universal group of those who have believed on Jesus like Peter did here. It's the global people of God who have come to him in faith. It's the spiritual headquarters of God on this earth, the home base for all of his kingdom operations. It's a word in Greek, in Matthew's gospel, ekklesia. And it's translated for us as the word church. Now what's interesting is, there was no New Testament church yet when Jesus said this, at least as we, as we think of it. But it was a word that would have been familiar to Jesus' 
hearers and Matthew's readers because it's a word in that language that simply referred to a gathering or an assembly. People who came from somewhere else and assembled. They gathered. And that's exactly what the people of God had already been doing. They had gathered in corporate life together for teaching and for worship and so on and so forth. But Jesus was doing something with this word, probably at this point unbeknownst to his disciples, for a new age. He was doing something different than they were perhaps used to, creating something new with it, renovating that word for the new age that he was ushering in. Because it's not like Jesus said, I will build my church, and then that following Sunday, Christians started getting together to sing, Jesus loves me. No, they did that after the resurrection, and they called it the Lord's Day because of the resurrection. So Jesus was pointing to something that they didn't fully understand yet. He was also pointing to something that was already there in terms of the use of the word and the concept of assembling, but he was also making a new thing. He was pointing to a new thing that he was making, which was and continues to be the group of confessors in faith like Peter and all who followed him. And so I said a moment ago that this is so important because what you believe about Jesus is literally what determines whether or not you're part of his church. You can go to church and not be part of the church of Jesus Christ. You could even be a covenant member at a Bible-believing church, but have everybody fooled and not have ever confessed truly that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And that's why, as a church, we're committed to meaningful membership where the members are those who confess that Jesus Christ is Messiah and King and Lord and Master and Savior, that He is the Anointed One of God. Because for Redeemer Bible Church to be a church that's part of Jesus' church, we have got to be faithful to that sound confession that Jesus is the Christ. And you know, as I thought about this and was meditating on all the implications of this passage for our lives, I, I had the thought, and we'll have to talk about it in an elders meeting, if we would do well as a church to begin to recite some faithful confessions of the faith in our gatherings. I know Brandon would be a big fan of that. He's talked about that with me before. Perhaps some portions of our own doctrinal statement, perhaps sections from old confessions like the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession or other formal confessions that faithful gospel churches agree on. We must be faithful to the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But we still need to observe something vital from this text that we haven't even said anything about yet. And that is that the church will stand because of its master builder. Jesus says in no uncertain terms in verse 18 that he was starting something new, his church, which he would build and which would not fall. He says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's how it's said in my ESV. But if you have a CSB or an NIV with you, you see instead of the word hell, the word Hades. And Hades is, I think, actually a better translation because when we read the gates of hell in verse 18, we might imagine 
hell as the domain of the demons and the damned. But that's not the intent behind the original language here. The word Hades is a word that simply refers to, refers to the realm of the dead, the place of death, or we could say the grave. And you might even have a note down in the bottom of the page in your Bible that says something along those lines. Because the Greek word Hades is the Greek version of the Old Testament Hebrew word Sheol. And that word Sheol in the Old Testament was not thought of as a place of eternal torment like we think of being associated with the word hell in our context. No, it was a word thought of as the grave, which is still, granted, not exactly a nice place, but it's not exactly a place with rusty cast iron gateposts with demons sitting atop. This is where what I said earlier regarding the location of Caesarea Philippi is significant. So here we go with that. Where Jesus and his disciples stood was this Caesarea Philippi region stated for us in verse 13. And that region was actually named or called by some in that time as the gateway to the world. And they didn't use that phrase in a good way because Caesarea Philippi was a place of spiritual death and contamination. Caesarea Philippi was a region at the northernmost most border of Israel, a region that had been given, I know history lesson, but bear with me because it's important, a region that had been given to Herod the Great by the Roman Caesar Augustus and then renamed by Herod the Great's son Philip, the Tetrarch, to combine his own name with Caesar's name. And thus you get Caesarea Philippi. You follow me? And it was a Jewish city, but it contained a Greco-Roman temple to Caesar. And he was worshipped there as God. And in Caesarea Philippi, there was also a temple to the Syrian god, Baal, who you've heard of if you've read the Old Testament. There was also a temple to the Greek god, Pan. So in other words, this was a highly pagan setting in what was supposed to be a city in the land of the people of the one true God. But instead, the Herodian dynasty and its alliance with Rome resulting in religious syncretism and, and, and even affected by the decreasing Jewish population as a result and the increase of pagan influence made this the gateway to the world, a place of spiritual death. And that's where Jesus stood and said to his disciples these things. He said it in a place, you could even say the place, where it would have seemed to many that the people of God were not prevailing and that the kingdom of death was prevailing. These not living, these false gods in contrast to the living God that Simon had identified Jesus as being the son of. These gods, Pan and Baal and Caesar, apparently reigned there. And so this was actually where the reign of death seemed strongest, where Jesus says, Sheol itself, death itself, will not win in the battle against my kingdom movement and its assemblies of gathered believers. That's what Jesus meant when he said the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. It kind of sounds like he might be saying Satan and the demons will advance on the church, but the church won't fall. Or the church will advance on the gates of 
hell and win. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is death and the power of death will not stop the spread of my kingdom through the advance of my church. Because think about what Jesus said next. In verse 21, which we'll begin looking at next week. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's right after he talks about death not prevailing that Jesus tells his disciples that he would suffer and die. Death would enter the equation of the advancement of the kingdom, but he would be raised from death. And so it seems like Matthew wants us to see that Jesus means what he's saying. Not even death is going to be able to stop the kingdom that I've inaugurated. It will be consummated one day because even though they will literally kill me, death will not stop me. I will build my church and death will not prevail. And if you were to say amen there, I would not be offended. But don't miss this other vital point here. It's Jesus who builds the church. Peter and his fellow confessors are part of the foundation, a vital part of the foundation, but Jesus is the cornerstone and the builder. Whatever you think he may or may not be saying about who or what is the rock, he's definitely not saying that the rock is going to build his church. He doesn't say, you will build my church. He says, I will build my church. Why does that matter for us? Here's where I want us to end and go today. There's a lot of reasons why it matters. But here's one I want to point out for us in our time and place. I think, brothers and sisters, that this statement from Jesus should instill confidence in us as his church and as his vice regents of his kingdom. Jesus says here in this text that no matter the opposition to his church, even death itself, his church will be left standing in the end. Just a few days ago, I was driving up Bridge Street, coming home from studying here at the church building, and there was this car in front of me that had been severely damaged. I mean, it was crunched up in the front. I couldn't believe this car was being driven. Maybe it had even recently happened and they were taking it somewhere from where it had gone, but it looked terrible. The irony is there was a sticker in the window that said Uber. And I thought, well, that wouldn't exactly instill confidence in me if they pulled up and I was a potential passenger and this man or woman pulls up to my location with a seriously damaged vehicle and says, it's okay, it'll work out in the end. Not exactly confidence instilling. But when King Jesus says, not even death will end this thing that I've inaugurated, and then he proceeds to be raised from the dead after his enemies kill him, that instills confidence in me. And that should instill confidence in you. So do you know what these words of Jesus mean? It means that there is nothing that will outlive the church of Christ in this world. It means that every nation, every false religion, every evil force will one day fall as the church of Jesus Christ remains standing. It means that there is nothing that can take down the church. And so if you're worried about what Biden or Trump might do to the church in the U.S. through their leadership, don't worry 
The church is going to stand long after whatever those guys do to our country. If you're worried about the horrible testimony that a hyper-conservative, legalistic, and biblically inaccurate pharisaical teacher can and often do to the church of Jesus Christ, I understand, but don't worry, because the church will not fall to oppressive, fear-mongering, pharisaical teachers. And if you're worried about the progressives in theology today, the Sadducees of our age that would promote unbelief and skepticism and question the truth of Scripture, that they might destroy the church, you don't have to worry. Nothing can destroy the church of Jesus Christ in the end. Friends, think, think, think of it historically. The church survived the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The church survived the circumcision controversy at the Jerusalem Council. The church survived the influence and contamination, or, or whatever other word you might want to use, of the Roman Catholic Church. She survived the inerrancy debates of the early 1900s. She will survive everything that continues to pop up and seemingly threaten her influence or her endurance all the way to the last day when the church is left standing in the rubble of the demise of all the forces of death. The church of Jesus Christ will stand because it is the church that Jesus is building and will continue to build. So praise God that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who will build our church as he builds the church as we continue to seek and submit to and follow him and his reign over us. Let's pray. Lord, we want to have confidence as we go. Confidence because you are building your church, you have been building your church, and you will continue to build your church, and no force of death can prevail against it. Confidence because our Messiah is risen, and because no matter the controversies and struggles of the past, your church has prevailed. We've got hope and we want to cling to it. Help us to go with that confidence and hope. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in prayer for just a couple of minutes in response to the word of God. Amen. 
the greatness of our God, the sureness of our Christ, then 